I suppose you're wondering what you're doing here. It had crossed my mind. What's it all about? It's a question of your resignation. The information in your head is priceless. I don't think you realize what a valuable property you've become. A man like you is worth a great deal on the open market. Who brought me here? A lot of people are curious about what lies behind your resignation. You had a brilliant career. Your record is impeccable. They want to know why you suddenly left. Welcome to Prisoner Worth Watching, where we're looking at this groundbreaking 50-year-old show about spies, paranoia, and politics that's more relevant now than ever. I'm your host, and all I've ever wanted to do is go on a nice tropical vacation on an island where everyone has a number and everything is just fine. My co-host is Guy, who goes by number two, and who for some reason keeps bugging me about why I wanted a vacation in the first place. Hello, Guy. Hello, Ron. So have you figured out who number one is yet? Well, based on the number of foam fingers that I've seen, I'm going to guess that uh, the Cleveland Browns are number one. <laughs> that could be the surprising answer. <laughs> wait, wait till we get to the end of the series and we'll see. <laughs> so I've been watching The Prisoner for decades, but unlike with Doctor Who, where I've lost all sense of what's good and what's not, with The Prisoner, I'm convinced I know exactly how you should watch it. On the other hand, Guy has never seen a single episode. For a detailed introduction to the series and why we chose it, listen to last week's episode. Meanwhile, here's a brief synopsis. Patrick McGowan, famous for playing a spy, wanted to do a tight seven or eight episode miniseries with a clear point, taking the spy genre to its ultimate conclusion. The network wanted to do an unending series with 20 plus episodes every season. <laughs> so after working with McGowan and having a real tough time, the network finally compromised. And they ended up doing a 17-episode series, which in a way doesn't make a whole lot of sense because they had to come up with half of the stories over a weekend since they hadn't planned to do that many. And there is no order for the episodes that works. Episodes contradict each other, and some just aren't that good, although most of them are pretty good. But there's one of the most amazing shows in history buried in all this, if you know how to find it. So I'm here to tell you exactly how to watch the series, and Guy is here to tell you whether I'm right or whether I'm full of crap. Last week, we got prepared by watching the first episode of the spy series that first made Patrick McGowan famous, Danger Man, known as Secret Agent in the U.S., which is clearly the precursor to The Prisoner. This week, we're diving into the main event itself. Being the first episode, we have a lot to talk about, so let's get to it. Here we go with the first episode, Arrival. What exchange is this? Number, please. I want to make a call to... Local calls only. What is your number, sir? Haven't got a number. No number, no call. So this is the definitive first episode of the show, Arrival. Unlike some of the other episodes, from what I understand, this one has to be at the beginning, because it establishes everything. In my notes for this episode, I used a script from subslikescript.com. The script is pretty fast and loose with the transcription, but it was still very helpful. So credit where credit's due. And with that, the opening scenes start with a thunderclap. <laughs> and you see a very, very nice car driving down the road. 
According to SandsMuseum.com, it's a Lotus 7S2, and I'm guessing it's a pretty pricey car. It passes the Houses of Parliament, goes into a parking garage. The protagonist walks down a long hallway leading underground. The next scene is he's yelling at a bureaucrat sitting at a desk. We don't hear what he's saying. This is all just music and thunderclaps. But he lays an envelope on the desk. The envelope's labeled private, personal, by hand. We'll find out soon enough that this is his letter of resignation. And a funny thing here, he's literally pounding the desk. And at one point when he pounds the desk, there's a cup of tea that goes up about two inches. He's hitting it so hard. <laughs> the guy behind the desk, I think he might be bald or something. He's, he's you know, definitely an interesting looking guy. His name is George Markstein, and he was the story editor for the series. And the funny thing is, of course, they filmed this first before they filmed anything else in the series. As the series progressed, his relationship with Patrick McGowan degraded, and they were having these kinds of arguments all the time. <laughs> so hmm. This was a very appropriate setup for all that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess it's good that he didn't resign before the series was finished. <laughs> So after he's chewed this bureaucrat out, he heads out and there's a sinister car tailing him. And then we cut back to somewhere within this bureaucracy and we see a typewriter redacting a photograph, covering it with X's. And we'll get a couple shots of this where the X's are being typed at random angles and it's a, <laughs> a very inefficient way to block out a whole <laughs> photograph, you know, instead of putting a big magic marker all over it or just right. burning it. I love this intro overall. We'll talk more about it. But there's this huge question. Is the prisoner John Drake from Danger Man? One of the clues to this, even though Patrick McGruin always said it wasn't, is that that photo that's being X'd out is the photo of him as John Drake in Danger Man. <laughs> oh, is that like his promotional photo? Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, cool. Also, typical bureaucracy, right? They have this huge amount of machinery set up to take this picture and this machine delivers it through this whole system and drops in this drawer, or they could have just hired an intern for two bucks an hour and have them go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They've got this whole elaborate ceiling mounted system that does the filing quite a bit of work for what's probably a five or 10 second scene. Yep. Yep. But it certainly establishes that this is a show with some production values, which is <laughs> nice. McGowan, the agent that he's playing, gets home, and the car that was pursuing him, a guy in a top hat gets out, <laughs> and it's a very, it's not like one of those low-rise top hats. It's mm -hmm. a big, uh, it's a big old thing. And he injects sleeping gas through the keyhole of the apartment. I'm not a spy, but I'm guessing that if you don't want to be noticed <laughs> as a spy, <laughs> that walking around with a big top hat and a big black coat is not the way to do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, unless you're a spy in the, the 1880s or thereabouts. You know? <laughs> yeah. But the yeah, 1960s, it probably sticks in the mind. Yeah. <laughs> in the apartment, as the gas begins passing through the keyhole, the agent is packing some suitcases and it looks like from the photographs that he has he may be planning some sort of uh, idyllic tropical vacation which as it turns out is exactly what he's going to get <laughs> <laughs> yeah. maybe not the way he intended <laughs> yeah well, more of a mediterranean vacation but yeah same ballpark he passes out looking out the window at what may be the last skyscrapers <laughs> he sees for a while and to get us up to this point, 
That was almost exactly two minutes, 30 seconds. A lot happened in a very short time. It's mm-hmm. a pretty intense little sequence. I thought that was a pretty promising start for the show. Well, I won't quite yet give away what my final conclusion was, but it was a promising start anyway. Mm-hmm. Oh, and I wanted to mention another thing about this that came to mind. Having watched the whole first season of Doctor Who, there's a distinction made in television and movies even, I think. It's a d- distinction between single-camera and multi-camera shows. And it's kind of counterintuitive because you'd think that the shows that are more elaborate are the ones that are called multi-camera, but actually it's the opposite. A multi-camera mm. show is typically a sound stage, and you have multiple cameras so that you can get different actors from different angles. Some shows that depict the behind-the-scenes of filmmaking or TV broadcasting like Scrooged or Network come to mind, there'll be a director in a booth and he says, camera two, zoom in, you know, he's, Mm -hmm. he's switching between cameras in real time. A single camera show, they may use more than one camera, but they only need one camera because they have no time limitations. Alice can say, how are you doing, Bob? And then when they show us Bob replying, oh, I'm doing fine. How are you? Well, if that's from a different angle, that could have been filmed three weeks later and just Mm -hmm. all pasted together later on. But this introduction, I think, makes it clear that this is what's considered a single-camera show. I have this vague memory that the multi-camera stuff started with Lucille Ball and I Love Lucy. I think they really premiered that. Ooh, could be. I wanted to talk about this intro in general. I say it's two and a half minutes. They put it in front of each of the shows so that if someone is watching it and they've never seen it before, they get the full context for what's going on. Shows used to always have these. They don't so much these days. Some of them were really good. Some of them weren't. I think this is one of the best. I mean, this is really a mini film. In two and a half minutes, they tell you, with no dialogue, they tell you the entire background of this person, and you know exactly what's going on once the episode starts. It reminds me, and I seem to recall you telling me that you have not watched The Dark Knight. Now, that was the one before Heath Ledger's one, right? That was the, the Heath Ledger one. Oh, okay, I did see that one. Then. Okay. Yeah. Well, the first couple minutes of that, if you remember, is essentially also like this, a complete story where these guys are robbing this bank, and it's kind of a mini-movie, very similar to this, and I, oh, I've always okay. really enjoyed that about The Dark Knight. Also, I don't recall if I've ever said this before, but I really think we should do all the Batman films at some point because there's some really terrible ones and there's some really good ones. So perfect for our podcast. Yeah, that would be a candidate. I loved, what was it, 89, the one with Jack Nicholson in it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, So yeah, that'd be an option. Don't want to spoil things for years (laughs) down the road. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, I think it's an amazing intro. and, And I think between the theme, which we'll talk more about later, But I will say the theme was done by Ron Granier, who was the composer of the Doctor Who theme. Uh Even though I'm so familiar with this series, I didn't even realize that until doing research this time around. Uh So if you stick around to the very, very end of the podcast, we'll talk a little bit more about that. All right. After the gas has knocked the agent out, he awakens in a tasteful apartment that isn't the apartment he was just in. We hear a church organ playing, and he looks out 
on a lovely courtyard in a quaint little village. It has a lot of European-style architecture, and it's surrounded by woods. Just a very, very pleasant little scene. But, of course, he has no idea where he was, so he's a little alarmed. And being in a secret agent, he wakes up fast. He <laughs> goes running right away up the steps of the bell tower uh, so he can get a better view of the town. And the titles begin to appear superimposed, and the font is very interesting. It's hard to describe. It's like a combination of a 1960s-style font and medieval font. I, I don't know how to describe it better than that. It's really a memorable looking, and we will see it quite a bit, even in just this one episode. And this is so far the only one I've seen still. Turns out this font is used for most signage and publications in the town. From the bell tower, he sees there's a little cafe way down below, and there's a lady opening umbrellas on the patio. Church bell rings right behind him. He's way up in the bell tower, so it alarms him a little, hey. and he heads down to the cafe. The lady who's tidying up here tells him that we open soon. He asks where he is, and she answers, You're new here. And that's all the information she gives him, which he already knew. And this will be a recurring theme throughout this episode. Very few people in this town seem to be able to give a straight answer to a simple question. Yeah, and I also wanted to mention about the location. We talked about this a bit last time. So this is a place called Port Marion. It's in Wales, and it's a very special place. One of the interesting things is that it is a vacation location. And while they were filming, it was still operating as a vacation location. So ah. there were all these people who had come and spent all this money to stay in nice hotels and be in this location. And then, for example, here, that cafe was real. And that's where people would want to go for breakfast. But they wouldn't let anybody in because they were filming. So oh, it's an interesting process. <laughs> the lady asks the agent if he wants breakfast. He says, where is this? And she says, the village? I'll see if coffee is ready. <laughs> so he he at least got her to say that it's a village, which mm -hmm. is nice. She tells him if he needs to make a call, it's around the corner, and there's a little telephone kiosk. It's not a booth, just sort of a little stand, and it's got some neat-looking cordless phones on it. They're slimmer than the, you may remember, the big brick-like <laughs> cell phones of the 1980s. They're slimmer than that. They're more like a contemporary, if you have a cordless phone for your landline, or that sort of thing. There are a number of things in here like these cordless phones and speakers, as we'll see, that are also cordless that are around the village, where now we look at it and say, oh, okay, yeah, whatever. None of this existed at the oh, time. Oh, yeah. Yeah. This was all them predicting things. Oh, yeah. Then even in... uh 70s and 80s and, well, really even the 90s. I mean, phones with cords on them were, were the norm. <laughs> and their cordless phone, as you say, was much sexier than what actually came about. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't think I've seen one for sale that looks anything like this, but it's pretty slick. They try making a call and the operator asks, what is your number? And it isn't clear that she's asking for his Mm -hmm. number that he's been given because, you know, your first thought is what number are you trying to reach? But either way, he says, I haven't got a number. Operator says, no number, no call, and hangs <laughs> up on him. Just mm -hmm. Poor customer service, I think. <laughs> so he looks around and sees uh, just a short walk away, there's a different kiosk labeled free information. He goes up to it, and 
there's a map key that is a different button for each destination. <laughs> he pushes the button and immediately a taxi cart arrives. It's like a golf cart, but it's got more seats. It's longer. This was a relatively new kind of vehicle, kind of a lightweight, able to get around quickly sort of thing. They basically took this new thing that was sort of a trend and then stuck the awning on top of it to make it look like all the other prisoner stuff. So. Well, okay. We'll see different variations on the design later on, mm-hmm. too. Numbers. Well, I call him number six. That's We find out eventually that's who he is, number six, or that's who they call him. He, he would mm-hmm. want me to make that distinction, I think. <laughs> The taxi driver, she's a woman, and she looks Asian, which in itself isn't particularly notable, except that in this village, we don't see a lot of people who are anything but lily white. So she's kind of an exception. I'm not sure yet the significance of it, if any. There is a significance, I think, which is throughout, and we'll see especially in this episode, they don't want you to know who's running this place. Is it just one government? Is it multiple governments? By introducing you to an Asian woman right up front, especially at that time, like you say, it would not be something you would even think about now. They're kind of saying, oh, look, there are people of different ethnicities here. Therefore, this is a kind of different place. Yeah. But as you say, unfortunately, they don't have very much diversity in the show. So Yeah. (laughs) This gets brought up explicitly a little bit. I hadn't put it in the notes, but she actually, when he's slow to respond to her first question, she speaks in French. Yeah. And he asks her, why did you speak in French? And she says, well, it's the international language. (laughs) She figured he was Polish, I think she says. Yeah. Yeah. He asks why she keeps avoiding his questions, and she says, do I? (laughs) (laughs) At the end of their ride, she tells him the charge is two units. She says they're credit units, and he doesn't have any, of course. She says, well, pay me next time. (laughs) Uh, And she takes off. So that woman did not know how to drive. (laughs) Patrick McGowan was terrified because she's driving him all over this place, and he's just waiting for her to crash into something. (laughs) (laughs) That's an interesting casting choice. You'd think that would be a Well, that just shows you how few choices they had for (laughs) diversity, (laughs) yeah. Yeah. Although you'd think England in the 1960s, by then they had the whole empire. You know, you had a lot of people from India. Anyway, no problem. Well, I think as we'll see as Doctor Who goes along, unfortunately, even though Britain is actually a pretty diverse place, in terms of actors and the system, people didn't have access to that, right? So you didn't have a lot of diversity there, and you had a lot of equivalent of blackface and yellowface and that sort of thing in order to portray those characters. Yeah. Oh, sure. So the taxi has brought him to a general store. He goes in and the proprietor finishes dealing with another customer. He talks to the other customer in another language, which reinforces what we were just talking about, right? We don't, I don't even think we know what language he's speaking. I know he tells her at one point you can go help yourself to a pineapple or something like that. Would you help yourself to Number six, when it's his turn, he asks for a map, and the shopkeeper offers him an option of black and white or color, I think. Yeah, first he looks at the black and white one, and it shows the village. The village is surrounded by the sea and by mountains, so it's cut off from everything. 
And it doesn't show anything outside the village. The mountains and sea are the borders of the map. Yes, for a bigger map, the shopkeep gives them a color map, which is considerably bigger. But it still only shows the same information. <laughs> yeah, I love this joke. You know? <laughs> it's like, here's a bigger map. <laughs> and I love the shopkeep's response when he asks him about this. Yeah, yeah. Number six says, I'm in a larger area. And the shopkeep says, no, we only have local maps, sir. There's no demand for any others. <laughs> Apparently now there is a demand. You got to get on that. And he goes out into the street and a PA system starts speaking and says, good morning. It's another beautiful day. This will happen again later on in the episode. It seems to be a regular occurrence. And he gets back to the apartment where he woke up earlier. It's apartment number six, which ends up being indicative of who he now is or is called. He's just in time to see the maid leaving down a walkway through some bushes. He gets a phone call, and it's a male voice. He says, join me for breakfast. Number two, the Green Dome. Well, the agent heads on over. It's a fancy old tower. It's not the bell tower, but it's a similar construction. Yeah, it's a round. And it is a green dome on top. And then there's uh, the music accompanying this is kind of whimsical and jazzy. It's an arrangement of Pop Goes the Weasel, <laughs> but kind of a playful, unusual arrangement of it. The door is answered by a butler who is a little person, I think the term is. He doesn't really say anything, he just sort of shows the agent in. The door to this inner sanctum opens, and inside it's a big dome. It's I've, <laughs> I've been to one place where they broadcast an IMAX movie on this inner wall of the dome, like half the dome was a movie <laughs> screen. If you go to planetariums, sometimes they'll do movies or music things and play light shows on the dome. Mm, okay. Interesting thing about this set, they were using certain studios in England, and as it happens, 2001 was being filmed in the same studios at the same time. Mm. And first of all, it's kind of amazing that The Prisoner in 2001 being filmed at the same time, both very radical things that 50 years later you know, are still a big part of culture. Mm-hmm. Because of that, they didn't have that much space for multiple sets. So one of the very clever things they do, and once you know this, you'll kind of see it as we go along, is they had this really big room, and they just kept repurposing it for all the different sets. So you'll see over and over again, they use this same big round dome room for different sets. Yeah. That way they could just use the same space. I can think of, there, there's at least two places. There's the labor exchange later on. And then there's a room that's kind of like a war room, which I think is supposed to be different from this office. The clue is that all of the times that they're using this room, there's a big screen in one portion of it. And so Mm. whenever there's a big screen, you know they're using the same big round room. (laughs) Very good. So when he gets into this room, there's nothing here except a big control console. And uh, there's one of those big old penny farthing bicycles somewhere in the room various other minor ornaments but there's no actual person until 
the person rises out of the floor in a big sphere chair, which it's hard to describe, but it's basically a picture of a billiard ball that's got <laughs> hollowed out on one side and a cushion put in it. Yeah, that, it doesn't seem very comfortable to me to sit in <laughs> But it's this memorable. <laughs> so the fellow rises out of the floor. He's carrying an umbrella, one of those multicolored themes that we'll see more of throughout the episode. And he used the tip of the umbrella to push another button on his control panel, and it brings up a second chair rising out of the floor. <laughs> this bicycle that's in the room, yeah, I, I called it a penny farthing. Mm-hmm. If you're not familiar with the term, it's... The ones that have the gigantic front wheel and the real tiny rear wheel. The bicycle in this room, it seems random, but as the episode goes on, we'll see this seems to be a theme of the village. We'll see these bicycles elsewhere. I don't think we ever actually see anybody riding this style of bicycle. Yeah, I'm not even sure they are rideable. Yeah. My impression is this is a very Victorian thing. And so you have this weird combination of a very high tech place that also has these very nostalgic and historical aspects to them, right? You know, mm-hmm. I'm not quite sure what they meant by that, but it is a very compelling image. Yeah. And, and some people even wear buttons on their mm-hmm. chest that have a picture of one of these bikes on it. Yeah. The, the uh, button that shows their number has that. Oh, okay. Yep. That's supposed to be their number button. All right. Mm-hmm. Anyway, this guy is named number two. And uh, <laughs> which if I were a kid, I would find funny, but <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> you can still find it funny today. In fact, the Austin Powers movies had uh, some amusing jokes about that, but I digress. Number two says the information in your head is priceless. I don't think you realize what a valuable property you've become. A lot of people are curious about what lies behind your resignation. You had a brilliant career. Your record is impeccable. They want to know why you suddenly left. Well, number six isn't impressed with the man's argument. He says, I don't know who you are or who you work for, and I don't care. I'm leaving. <laughs> and he tries to, but nope, the door stays shut. So he's not going anywhere until number two decides he is. He is the definition of someone who doesn't do monologuing. It's like, I'm out of here. (laughs) Screw you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Number two shows number six, a scrapbook. And this is an interesting little visual because as he flips the pages of the scrapbook, there's a wall display that's showing exactly what is on the page he's looking at. This is really interesting because they use this a lot throughout the series where you see things on that screen. That was a big production deal because it's not like today where you could just digitally put the images on the screen later on. Right. They were back projecting those images, which means they had to film them earlier. So they had to plan this out and they had to think about, okay, it's going to take us this long to get these images and to get them through the film production process so that we can then put them into the back projector (laughs) and put them up here. And in some cases that meant they had to have actors do things twice right once two weeks earlier and then they'd have to do the same thing again while it was being filmed so that you would see them on the screen doing the same thing they're doing in in the room anyway just kind of interesting how much little things that you may not think about that actually have a huge impact on how they had to plan and produce the show oh yeah so it's clear from this scrapbook that number two really is the goods on number six although he doesn't know everything he wants to know about him of course which is why he's here. 
Well, number two recalls a time, just to give him an example of how much they do know about him. He gives an example when number six went to meet a man named Chambers, who never showed up for the meeting, and in fact, I think he says he never showed up anywhere again. Number two makes an odd remark. He says, a nice guy, Chambers, and so taut. <laughs> it's, a, it's kind of an offhand remark. It reminds me of Goldmember, where he's telling Austin Powers, You have a toy body. Yes. I see that from your toy pants. Yes, you are toyed like a tiger. <laughs> just, it's not really the first thing that you'd think you'd comment on a right. secret agent, but oh, well, there it is. <laughs> He's showing him these very close-up photos, some of which were within his apartment, etc. And so they have photographic history of his life all over the place, in even the most private places. And this was before Britain had CCTV. Mm. So this, again, was kind of a projection of the future. Yeah, using some advanced technology. Although, from the still photos, they could have also just had a guy in the bushes with a camera. <laughs> but uh, that would be pretty pricey to follow around all the time, though. Yep. Anyway, it's one way or another, they managed. And he goes on with another example about a time... Number six came back from a trip to Singapore, and he was feeling under the weather and thinking about taking a vacation, and he shows several still photos again, and he's narrating what's going on in the agent's head for each one. For instance, do you remember that time you arrived back from Singapore? Change of climate, feeling a bit shaky. You were sickening for a cold. Sneezed yourself out of our camera. Deciding to take a vacation. Now, where can you go? Ireland? A bit too cold that time of the year. Paris? Maybe not. What was that? Sounded like a click. Something in the mirror? Or was it over there? Yes, over there, too. He's just giving his own little narration for each one. Six tells him, I have nothing to say. Is that clear? And he throws the scrapbook on the floor. Absolutely nothing. Number two insists that sooner or later, he'll tell him, he says, sooner or later, you'll want to. Number six, and this is an important quote, I think. Mm -hmm. As I said, this is the only episode I've seen, but this, to me, this seems almost like a mission statement or a theme statement of the show. So I could be blowing it out of proportion, but he says, I will not make any deals with you. I've resigned. I will not be pushed, filed, stamped, indexed, briefed, debriefed, or numbered. <laughs> No, I get the impression that's at least one of the lodestones of the show. Yeah, I think that's Could a good right. guess. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> then they take a ride in a helicopter, and number two is pointing out the various buildings of the town. The council building, which is the council's democratically elected, he's proud to point out. <laughs> uh, yeah, because they, they care so much about people here. Mm. They use it for public meetings, amateur theatricals, he says. Points out the restaurant, which is the cafe we saw earlier. Mm -hmm. He says, did you know we have our own newspaper? Number six says, you must send me a copy. So <laughs> number six, we, I've skipped over it, but throughout the episode, number six and number two occasionally have some amusing little interplay or number six may be disgusted with him, but he hasn't lost his sense of humor. <laughs> Number two mentions we also have a graveyard, which we'll see later on in the episode. And a social club, he points out, and a citizen's advice bureau. So that's 
just some of the many wonderful things to be seen in the village. And one of the behind the scenes things here, when they were in the helicopter filming all this, when they went over the restaurant or the cafe, which was the actual cafe for this village, they went very close over it and it had a chimney and that chimney had not been cleaned out probably since it was there. So what happened from the helicopter is that it set a gust of air through the chimney and all the people who were the vacationers there who were in the cafe got covered with soot. <laughs> they came oh, running out. Brother. <laughs> I wish they'd left that in, you know, <laughs> it would have been fun. <laughs> that would have been good. <laughs> well, maybe somebody somewhere has the best film of that. <laughs> the helicopter lands on a big lawn and it's the old folks' home. Now, it looks like a beached boat, but actually it's something meant to look like a boat. But there's a bunch of people playing on it, just having a grand old time like it's a piece of playground equipment. It's actually a stone boat, so it's really bizarre. <laughs> it's just have this boat that can't move and could never have been a boat. <laughs> the architect for Port Marion, who we will talk about later, that was part of his vision, so whatever that was about. <laughs> <laughs> And number two, when the agent, number six, notices this, number two says, you'll probably see the funny side of that, which is, uh, of course, you can't go anywhere in the boat. (laughs) Regarding the people sitting out on the lawn of the old folks' home, he says, they're the senior citizens. They have every comfort you're looked after as long as you live. Yeah, and this is kind of our first indication that there's no expectation that our hero is going to leave. (laughs) You you go out in a box. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. One of the residents who's number two points out is a retired admiral. He pops up later on in the episode, and it's possible, it, it occurred to me, could be number one, but I, I, I don't know. I don't want you to reveal it because <laughs> I'll find it. But I, I have a suspicion that we won't ever find out who number one is, but I could be wrong. So mm-hmm. we'll see. Okay, we will see. So they take a taxi to another building. The taxi horns are interesting. They have a four-note repeating motif it sounds a little bit like the twilight zone except the notes aren't exactly right but it's similar so i don't know if that's deliberate or not a marching band goes by playing a march It seems like all the outdoor music in this village, at least in this episode, is all marches. That's it. There's no classical, <laughs> no jazz, no it's all it's all marches. And they're they're lighthearted marches for the most part, but they're still marches. The PA announces that strawberry ice cream is for sale today. So presumably there's one or fewer flavors of ice cream <laughs> for sale on any given day. And it says, here's a warning. And number six kind of perks up his ears at that. But it's just a warning that it might rain later on. (laughs) So not too terrifying. Although, given this place being what it is, who knows? It could be acid rain or God only knows. (laughs) Anyway, they come to a big building. I think this may be the council building, but I'm not certain. Number two stands up on the front porch of this building they come to. I think it may be the council building. And he speaks through a megaphone, and everybody in the vicinity can hear him. And there are a lot of people. This is kind of a bustling area. 
He says they couldn't settle for ages. Now they'd never leave. And he's referring to all these people in the village. He says they had made some choice at some point. Mm -hmm. He's not very clear about what choice that was, but apparently they chose to stay here. To me, the implication is like number six, these were all spies or something who were brought here. And like number six, they started out being kind of antsy and didn't want to stick around, but now they've all settled in and they're okay with it. That's his, his message, right? Yeah. That that could be, although my suspicion, and this could be wrong, it seems to me like a lot of the people here may just be props. I I don't think they were all. That's a big question, right? Were they all spies like six or is this all a setup just for him? I mean, that, that's a huge part of the show, right? Oh, okay. I mean, I'm not saying you're, uh, we're jumping ahead. It's just like you, that's what you're trying to figure out as you go along. Right. 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 Okay. And then number two does something really odd. He says, wait, wait, be still. And he says it through the megaphone. And when he says this, everyone freezes in mid stride. You know, I mean, they have to have both their feet on the ground, but they just hold still as soon as they can and they stay still. Number six looks off to the side. There's a fountain that's emitting Mm. an upward stream of water, a jet of water. On top of that jet, there's a ping pong ball or something that looks a lot like it, maybe a small white balloon. It's floating on the top of that jet of water, and suddenly it vanishes. Maybe it pops. It reveals behind it there's a balcony with a much, much larger white balloon on it. It's as tall as a man, probably five or six feet tall. And it's a slickly done little scene because that transition is just sort of seamless between Mm -hmm. the small ball pops and you see the big ball behind it. When number six notices this giant ball up on the balcony, one of the guys who had been freezing, he gets this alarmed Look, you see a scene of maybe four seconds or so where he's kind of freaking out and then he starts running. And this vaguely reminds me of a meme. If you search for Italian Spider-Man <laughs> scared guy, you can uh, compare and contrast. <laughs> okay. But this guy starts running and that's not acceptable to the balloon. So it floats down off the balcony and it engulfs him. And it's an interesting effect here because if you've seen the 1980s Blob remake, there's a scene where the Blob, actually there's probably more than one scene coming back, but the Blob covers somebody and you can see these screaming faces showing through it. And this is very much that same scene except with balloon latex instead of Blob gel. It's really a creepy, effective little scene. And then we see the balloon rolling away, and it's not clear if the guy was inside it as it rolls away or if it just left him lying on the ground. But whatever the case may be, people go about their activity again. They all just, in unison, start moving again. It wasn't just the people, but, like, the fountain water started going and everything. So when he said Mm. freeze, like, everything froze. (laughs) Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. And number six says, what was that? Number two says rather smugly, that would be telling. (laughs) About this balloon business, I won't go into it in depth at the moment because I think we're going to talk more about it later. But to hear it described, it might sound cheesy and it could Mm. very easily have been done in a cheesy way. But the way they handled it, I thought it actually seemed pretty menacing. It was fairly effective for me. 
Yeah, we're going to see them a lot more. I don't recall if they ever say this in the show, but the entire production called it Rover. So oh, that's okay. at least how I'll refer to it in the, in the future. And there's a whole story about the development of this and what might have happened and what might have been very different. And I think what they landed on was very successful in a future podcast. We'll go over some of the details of that story. But yeah, Rover is a key part of the show. And I think it's one of those things where if they hadn't got it right and they didn't, they started filming this and they were a couple of weeks into filming and they still didn't know what Rover was going to be or how they were going to do it. Hmm. And if they hadn't got it right, I think that the show might not be the classic that it is. It's just one of those elements that really had to work. Yeah. Yeah. They could have used something like, I don't know, Robbie the robot from uh, <laughs> yeah. Lost in Space or whatever. But at least in this first episode, I think the rover works real well. Mm -hmm. At this point, while number two's still on the balcony with his megaphone, the PA system calls number two to the labor exchange. And number six is supposed to go with him. And the labor exchange sends number six to a woman named Nora who asks if he knows how to peel potatoes. I'm, I'm lying. You may, yeah, you may be confusing this with our previous movie. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a little carry-on sergeant joke for the dozen people left in Western civilization who remember that movie. <laughs> they get to the labor exchange, and there are lines of people waiting outside, and... And a little stylistic quirk here. Lots of people in town wear cloaks that are red, blue, tan, and brown, which isn't, to my taste, uh, the most harmonious <laughs> color scheme. Right. Well, and for clarity, they have strips of those colors, right? So the cloaks aren't just one color, but they're yeah, yeah, know, they're multicolored. Yeah, right. Every every cloak has these stripes, and and the cloaks are more or less identical. It looks like from person mm -hmm. to person. Not everybody has them, but the people who do have them, they're all basically the same cloak. Inside the exchange, there are some signs behind the reception desk or next to it. One of them says a still tongue makes a happy life. <laughs> Another prominent one that the camera actually lingers on for a few seconds is, questions are a burden to others. Answers a prison for oneself. <laughs> so mm -hmm. maybe maybe it's called the prisoner because he's Either. seeking these answers. Could be. That's just possible. <laughs> anyway, they go into another round room, which presumably is the round room yep. that we were discussing. It's decorated differently. It's got some nice arched columns going on along the sides. I think it's colored green, if I remember right. So they've done a few tricks to make it look like a completely different set. But there's a man in there. In addition to number two and number six, there's a man who's an employee of the labor exchange. He's got an aptitude test. He's got a questionnaire. And he's got this gigantic Tinker Toy gadget. Actually, I looked it up last night in Tinker Toy's nowadays are very different from what they were when I was a kid because hmm. they were wooden mm -hmm. they were yep. wooden items and now they're made out of plastic mm. and they've got some kind of funky shapes. But Tinker Toys, this machine in the room is actually made out of it looks like literal Tinker Toys. Like mm. they have the disc shaped hubs with the groove around the diameter of them that it looks like it's just an extra large Tinker Toy set. But but he's yeah. got an elaborate machine. And it's complicated. As he's talking, the person who is evaluating number six is constantly 
spinning the different ones and playing with it. And I think it's a little bit weird because you've already seen all this technological stuff, the cordless phones and all these other things. And all of a sudden we're looking at this complex tinker toy thingy, which is simultaneously very primitive. It's a child's toy, but it's also complex. It has no purpose. It's not like there's wires hooked up to it or anything. It feels to me like the whole purpose of this is so that the guy who is evaluating number six can be distracting him by doing all this little, you know, flipping these things around and making motion and everything that he wants to confuse and distract the person he's talking to, perhaps so that they will give him information without even realizing what they're doing, right? Something like that. Yeah, that could be. I hadn't thought of that when I saw the scene. I just assumed it was for an upcoming test of some sort, but I, I, you could very well be right. That would make sense. That seems to be a tactic that would align with the general sentiments of whoever's running this place. If it was for a later test, we don't get to find out. <laughs> right, right. He does take one test. He takes the aptitude test, which is to put a round peg in a much larger square hole. It doesn't test a whole lot of aptitude <laughs> as far as I can tell. But when he puts the peg in the hole, there's some sort of a sphincter that closes around it and then grabs the peg. The labor exchange guy and number two, they seem inordinately pleased that uh, <laughs> the hole grabbed the peg. So I'm, I don't know what the deal is there, but. Yeah, Maybe he passed the test. <laughs> I, I think the test is that he's supposed to think he wouldn't put it there because it's a square mm. and the peg is round, but he intuits that, in fact, it will work and he can put it there. So, But like you say, it's kind of weird. I'm not sure this worked out as well as it was supposed to look on paper. <laughs> it's not really clear what it's about. Yeah. yeah. And, of course, there is a metaphorical angle, too, because mm -hmm. it's a common expression, you know, the mm -hmm. square peg in a round hole or vice versa. Yeah, I, I, I think you're right. I think that's what they were really going for, not an actual quiz. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And number six himself is the square peg who's in the village's round hole or vice versa. <laughs> After he's gotten through that test, whatever score he got on it, the questionnaire is given to him, and the labor <laughs> exchange guy explains that this questionnaire will cover race, religion, hobbies, books, food, career, family medical history, and politics. And number six doesn't seem to want to fill out the questionnaire. <laughs> and it's at the point when he says politics, that seems mm. to really piss off number six. And at that point, he destroys the Tinker Toy machine. Yeah. Politics is the last thing the labor exchange guy mentions before number six just smashes the device. Then he stalks out. This time the door opens for him, though. It doesn't just give him an anticlimax like it did before. And number two remarks to the labor exchange <laughs> fellow. He says, I think we have a challenge. <laughs> well, number six, having nowhere else to go, it goes back to his apartment. And his maid is back. She's very cute young lady and, and very pleasant too. She introduces herself. I'm your personal maid. The labor exchange sent me. Those guys, those guys get around. The yeah. And I also say, I think there's a, at least a slight implication here that gets into Patrick McGowan's background, right? As we've said before, Patrick McGowan is a very conservative Catholic. We have this maid 
who's clearly kind of making herself available to him, saying, I'm your personal mate. His reaction is not what you <laughs> might expect. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. When she says the the labor exchange sent me, he says, that's another mistake they made. Get out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He's not yeah. interested whatsoever in whatever she might be offering. <laughs> yeah. He's not having any of that. But I, th I think you're right. There is at least a hint that she might be kind of like what in Soylent Green they called the furniture. Yeah, the, <laughs> she comes with the, the building. <laughs> so he looks around. He has some private time now that he's sent her away. Well, as much private time as you could have in, <laughs> in the village. There's probably a dozen cameras in there. Yeah. But there's nice pastoral orchestral music coming out of a speaker on a shelf. It's not exactly classical music. It's melodic, but it sounded to me almost like it could be the theme for like a 1940s movie. In this apartment, it's tastefully decorated for the 60s, and it's got all the lava lamps a man can <laughs> want. Yeah, so about lava lamps, they were kind of a craze at this time, right? Everybody was buying them for their apartment or whatever. This is not how the concept of the balloon rover came about, but I think that it turned out to be a nice coincidence that the shapes in the lava lamp of the oil going through it are very similar to rover. Mm, yeah, yeah, makes sense, sure. Yeah, and they do have that same sort of undulation that, mm -hmm. uh, that rover has. So yeah, good point. He goes around and he searches the drawers. One of them has a day planner, and it's already <laughs> filled out with today's entry. It says, arrived today, made very welcome. <laughs> yeah, I really like this. So it's it's in handwriting, so it's kind of like he's theoretically supposed to have written it, but someone else wrote it for him. So uh, it's just, I, I like that touch, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's not clear if that's meant to show him how to use it or if it's just there to sort of give him a little taunt, probably the latter. I think it's sort of saying we're going to define what things are like and you're going to have to go along with it, right? We're even going to write out your own diary for you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. He also finds in the drawers, he finds uh, another map and they didn't skip. They gave him the large full color. That's true. One. Yeah. <laughs> but again, only of this very small area. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Only within the mountains and the sea. He looks in the kitchen cupboards and they're they yeah, reasonably well stocked. They've got canned pea soup. They've got spaghetti sauce. Various, various did, staples. Did you notice it's all branded for the village, right? It's all. I think yes. they have the the penny farthing on them, et cetera. Yeah, they've got that pseudo medieval typeface on all the labels. Yeah, it's a uh, it's village brand. So clearly, they have a monopoly on products in the village. Yeah. <laughs> Or they're just repackaging them, something, yeah. <laughs> so he smashes the speaker to bits. He did a little bit of pacing around, getting more and more annoyed, presumably, by the music. And finally, he just picks the speaker off the shelf and smashes it on the floor. As soon as he does that, he hears a voice from somewhere, probably wherever the same place that the music is continuing from, because smashing the speaker didn't stop the music. But he hears this voice summoning the electrics department to the apartment to do some repairs. Another thing where they disturbingly predicted the future is this is actually how it works in North Korea. 
you must have mm. a radio going at all times in your apartment oh, wow. that is doing propaganda 24 seven. I have to say mm. of, of all the things I would not want to live in North Korea for, that is probably the number <laughs> one. <laughs> oh, yeah. geez. Yeah. yeah. And that's kind of darkly ironic because that very thing is what the telescreens in 1984 did. I mean, they also mm -hmm. watched you, but mm -hmm. part of it was that it was always on and always broadcasting whatever the government saw fit to give you. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I can't blame them for wanting to smash it. <laughs> <laughs> Even though the music was pretty innocuous at that point. I think an interesting thing here, too, is that they're not annoyed. They're just like, oh, the radio's been broken. It needs to be fixed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, somebody lost his patience again. <laughs> the cute little maid has returned. She forgot something and came back to retrieve it. She informs number six that the music can't be stopped. It's automatic. He starts asking her questions, and she's mostly as unhelpful as everybody else in the village. She does say that she's been here ages. She was orphaned at a young age. Presumably, like, her parents were spies or something, and she was brought here with them, and then... Mm, could be, yeah. When she says she was orphaned, that's also kind of dark, because it implies that they may have been done away with. <laughs> yeah, or, or it could just mean that they go to orphanages and just snatch up whoever they think is, <laughs> shows promise as a resident of the village. That's a possibility, absolutely, yeah. This girl has the makings of a future maid. <laughs> <laughs> She says, we have a saying here, a still tongue makes a happy life. And of course, he's seen that on the sign at the labor exchange. Mm -hmm. That seems to be uh, an important rule to keep in mind in this place. He asks if anyone has ever escaped. And she says, some have tried. They've been brought back. Not always alive. Yep. She's about to leave, but she breaks down crying and comes back in. And she has a little confession Put yourself into my position. They offered me my freedom in exchange. Exchange for what? Get into your confidence. Make you trust me. And tell them everything about you. Then they'd let you go. And number six has a good point here. He says, you really believe they'd let you go. What he's saying is, once you have the information in my head, you think they're going to let you go. Yeah. Either way, at this point, I could easily believe they wouldn't let her go just for the sake of being jerks. Yeah. Right. You've got more housekeeping to do, lady. <laughs> Whatever the case may be, she says she hadn't thought about that. Hard to believe, but then again, maybe that's precisely why they chose her from the job. Mm -hmm. And then she says, please help me. Number six has no help to offer. He can't even help himself right now. So he informs her, your services will not be required tomorrow. <laughs> so this is like the second time that he's thrown her out. <laughs> yeah. We see the domed room again. I, I think this one is set up slightly differently or decorated differently than number two's office. This is more like a war room type mm -hmm. situation, I think. For some reason, it reminds me of the Truman Show. It's been mm -hmm. years since I saw that movie, but it's, I seem to remember that the director, I think Ed Harris was the director in that, but he, he had his own little control center where he monitored that old giant dome where the Truman Show took place. This reminds me of that for some reason. So this guy with glasses, the assistant, he says she was most convincing. I thought for sure she'd pull it off, you know, meaning the maid. She was, she was a plant all along. 
Number two says, he's no ordinary man. This has got to be handled very differently. <laughs> to some degree, to me, the implication is they would expect him to go for her wiles and maybe develop a relationship with her, and he's just mm -hmm. not going to go there at all. <laughs> oh, yeah. And it also calls into question that whole thing she said about being orphaned and so mm -hmm. on. Was that true, or was it yeah. just a, a complete fabrication? We, right. We don't know. No <laughs> way to know, yep. We had so much to talk about for this first episode of The Prisoner that we're going to continue the discussion next week. Join us then for the rest of the story. Listen to me, Truman. There's no more truth out there than there is in the world I created for you. Same lies. The same deceit. But in my world, you have nothing to fear. Be seeing you.